name is Lou Moore. I'm with the Washington Research Council, and welcome to Policy Today. And our guest today is Nick Harper, who is the Senior Director of Strategy and Policy for the Master Builders Association of King and Snohomish County. Nick is also a board member of the Washington Research Council. Nick, welcome. Thank you, Lou. Thanks for having me. And I've asked Nick to uh, be a guest on our podcast today to talk about uh, a subject that the Research Council has uh, covered to some great extent, which is the our whole situation today, particularly in the Puget Sound region, uh, region excuse me, with housing affordability and the fact that we believe from the research we've done that the supply of housing has a lot to do with its affordability. So, Nick... How do you feel about that? <laughs> well, certainly the Master Builders Association agrees wholeheartedly. Um, I've been with the association about 16 months now. In fact, I think sh- it was just shortly before my coming to the MBA that the Research Council released its report on GMA and housing supply and affordability uh, focused specifically on the Puget Sound region. <clears throat> I think that report was a really important piece of work because the more voices that speak on this issue, the more momentum has been created over the course of the last year or so, I think, uh, to lead us to where we are today. Um, We just uh, finished our fourth annual housing summit last Tuesday, where we released um, a number of legislative strategies that not only the NBA and the building industry generally, but also a lot of stakeholders, I think, throughout the region um, are focusing on um, specifically to target um, both increasing the supply of housing and also an attempt to remove and uh, eliminate some maybe unnecessary or redundant regulatory barriers that currently exist uh, to uh, hopefully lower the cost of housing here in the Puget Sound. Sure. So, so let's talk about that for a second. Uh, you and I both just said housing supply. I mean, wh- why isn't there enough housing? I mean, wh- what's the situation? What are these barriers, some of these barriers? Sure. Well, an interesting statistic, uh, not, at, not at the why, but certainly at the what, that I heard recently, I think it was from the uh, Runstead Center for Real Estate Studies at the University of Washington, was over the last five years, on average, the city of Seattle proper has uh, grown by 50 people a day. 35 jobs a day, but only 11 living units a day. And I think probably to a lesser degree, but that trend could be extrapolated not only to the Seattle metropolitan region, but I think throughout the Puget Sound region, uh, generally Snohomish County, King, Pierce, and probably spilling over into Kitsap County as well. Um, I think the question of why that's the case is a harder one uh, to answer. We have a, a Growth Management Act, obviously, that's been around just about 25 years, certainly focuses and has been successful in limiting growth uh, to our designated urban areas and protecting our critical resource properties, our forest land and our farmland, as well as other resource and recreational uh, lands throughout the region. Um, but we also have significant restrictions within the urban areas where growth is supposed to occur that both limit density, um, and as a result, I think, drive down uh, prospective supply um, and make it difficult for uh, the building industry to keep up with the dramatic economic growth and population growth that we're seeing here uh, throughout the central Puget Sound. So um, so let's talk about uh, some of these impediments to uh 
to building in the designated growth areas. And again, I don't think anybody wants to uh, start building condos over uh, precious wetlands or uh, endangering our endangered species any further. But uh, but there are areas that have been designated for building. And what's going on in those areas? Uh, so one thing that you'd think would be relatively simple and intuitive with a growth management policy but currently doesn't exist is simply a minimum net urban density that needs to be achieved by all jurisdictions that are within these designated urban areas. Um, there has been litigation, and I think largely uh, the courts have said that, no, in fact, local jurisdictions, while we want to encourage uh, urban density, and I think as a guidepost, they've suggested about four units per acre is what is defined as an urban density that in fact <clears throat> there's really little mechanism to enforce that on a local jurisdiction so we still have cities in king snohomish county pierce that have a lot of one acre lots very large development uh, or large lot development rather that aren't utilizing land in a way that i think most of us would intuitively recognize as inherently urban one of the one of the uh, recommendations that we've put forward that it was born out of uh, not a new idea, but was uh, also part of the uh, Governor Inslee's recent housing affordability response team or HEART's recommendations is to establish a true minimum net urban density that could be enforced in communities throughout um, the Puget Sound um, at least the seven counties in the state that are subject to the buildable lands process, some of our higher uh, higher population counties. Uh, the number that we have recommended would be a, a realistic starting point, I think, would be six units per acre. Um, certainly there are groups that would like to see that number much higher, but I think given the fact that we have no enforceable minimum threshold at this point, that, um, that uh, trying to get the legislature to see the wisdom in establishing some floor, if we're going to uh, best marshal this finite resource, which is land in our urban areas, six units per acre as a minimum seems like a reasonable starting point. Sure. So, uh, you know, this density issue uh, is pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, indeed, a lot of folks in these local jurisdictions are worried about the character of their neighborhoods changing. And in some cases in Seattle, we see that that's the case is they're starting to allow people to build in their, ba- you know, sell their backyards off or whatever, or, or build in their backyards to I- increase the number of housing units on, on different properties. But in fact, uh, but isn't part of the problem that, that we haven't really been planning specifically for single family units for, for people that don't want to live in an apartment or in a little cabin behind somebody else's house or whatever? I mean, can you address that a little bit? I think that's right, Lou. Um, you know, most comprehensive plans now uh, uh, account for most of their capacity out into the future in um, – highly dense multifamily uh, zones, which is great, definitely a, a critical component of of the housing stock that we need to meet the growth demands we face. But I think your point is well taken and you're correct that there is still an inherent demand for uh, single family residences as some component mix of um, 
the stock being provided year over year. And what we see right now is most single family construction that's occurring is occurring far north along I-5, far south down I-5, and even east across the mountains into communities like Cleallum and Roslyn and Ellensburg, um, where people are commuting longer, spending more time on the road, emitting more CO2, uh, creating additional traffic congestion because we are not planning for um, what what we would view as a realistic and reasonable mix of housing types in all of our communities um, on a go-forward basis, which is why another uh, recommendation that we have uh, put forward with others would be to require some minimum uh, single-family residential requirement as part of communities' uh, future comprehensive planning processes. Sure. Sure. Now, you touched on this uh, briefly, but I think one of the interesting developments that is occurring is this is hardly a partisan issue at this point, is it? I mean, the governor seems to be pretty engaged. That's correct. Yeah. I think I mentioned the governor spoke at our housing summit last year in 2016. Uh, Certainly the theme from the speakers that he heard largely did focus on this supply side issue. You know, um, in my time in the legislature uh, and in my work over the years with local city and county governments, I think, uh, while very well-intentioned, government in general has taken a bit of a myopic view in terms of its role in housing affordability. Uh, Certainly, it's focused on trying to um, identify dollars for uh, supporting subsidized product, but rarely has it looked at the supply side of the issue. Are there regulatory impediments that are driving down the volume of new construction and if there are is there a way to remedy or relieve some of those impediments without degrading our environment further Um, and i think you know the governor really took to heart the messages that he heard at our summit and that he's hearing around the region from both democratically elected officials as well as republican elected officials and that's really what born this heart process the housing affordability response team that was a process that was at the direction of the governor uh, led by the department of commerce and brought together a group of traditionally disparate interests from environmental stakeholders to the building industry, real estate representatives, uh, non nonprofit and low-income housing providers, uh, and public interests as well to try to grapple with these questions and really identify what can, outside of just increasing funding for subsidized uh, product that really targets our lowest income and most vulnerable populations, what can the government do to, um, across the board and across economic uh, spectrum, increase the supply of housing for all. And that's um, that process is what bore out a number of these recommendations we discussed. So let's, uh, uh, including the recommendations from the governor's group, but also just in general, the legislative priorities that your folks have seen. Let's, let's go through those, can't we? Sure. Yeah. So I've mentioned a couple. The uh, the notion that we establish a minimum net urban density, um, one that wasn't born out of the heart process per se, but also has received some uh, uh, coalition support is this notion of a, some minimal sing- minimum single family residential requirement as part of comp plan updates. Um, another issue that was discussed as part of the heart process and also in the governor's broader ha- affordable housing advisory board is the need to reform our condo liability. Act. Uh, For the last 10 years, really since the recession, we have seen no new mid-rise condominium 
construction outside of the extreme high-rise units being built in downtown Seattle and on even a rarer occasion in downtown Bellevue. Uh, but these units are selling for uh, you know seven-figure dollar amounts. <clears throat> so there really is this gap in first-time home buyers, um, organizations like HomeSite that often provided uh, low-income home ownership opportunities through uh, smaller-scale condominium projects that have just been in a vacuum for 10 years. So the Runstead Center for Real Estate Studies at the UW did do a report last year that was published in July that focused on some key recommendations that could be pursued to try to alleviate some of the issues. Largely, they relate to the ability to finance projects and the risks associated with litigation, which has resulted in extremely high, if even available insurance premiums. Um, so there's a number of recommendations that have been floated. Uh, a lot of them have to do with, you know, capping damages, creating rights to cure for the builders of the projects. So I'm going to stop you right there. So right, what, what does that mean? Rights to cure? They have to fix the problem. In other yeah, words, I'm so saying? so if a, if a, an owner or an HOA of a new condominium project identifies a def, a true defect that's a material defect causing harm to the owner or owners that the contractor rather than just paying out a large damage claim actually have the ability to go in inspect the unit or units and identify the problem or problems and address them mm -hmm. um, I think that would be a great outcome not only for the homeowner that you know bought this unit hoping to make it their home for some period of time into the future um, and allow them to continue to build equity there but also obviously for the industry generally because this is a product that serves a real uh, important need for a certain mm -hmm. economic group. Um, at our summit this year, we had Gail Luxemburg, who's the director of the Seattle King County affiliate of the Habitat for Humanity Network, speak. And she came from the East Coast, where condos were a very important tool for Habitat for Humanity and its ability to provide low-income home ownership opportunities, which, as we know, provides so much stability um, for those families um, that are otherwise um, in, at times, very vulnerable situations. And as Gail pointed out, this is a tool that just doesn't exist right now in the market here in Washington State and one that I think uh, there are a number of folks that would like to see it addressed. Sure. Sure. So what other regulatory impediments are there out there in, in the minds of, of your folks or, or some of these other people that have been studying this so for last year? One issue that came up as part of the heart, process, heart discussion which was actually introduced this past legislative session, had to do with a number of issues, but uh, pointedly the buildable lands process. I spoke to it earlier. There are now seven counties, Whatcom County being the newest addition, that are subject to a buildable lands process where um, in between comprehensive plan updates, uh, the counties and their respective cities are tasked with going out and basically inventorying all the land that they have within their urban areas to ensure that they have adequate capacity to accommodate uh, predicted both residential, industrial, and commercial growth. Uh, and for years, uh, people in particular in our industry have felt that that process is flawed and isn't accurately depicting um, true availability. And, you know, from our member's perspective from a residential home construction uh, standpoint. And so this bill sought to bring some new market factors to bear as part of that analysis that cities and counties go through. 
um, and hopefully create some mechanisms to enforce uh, change if, in fact, we can show or it is shown through the analysis that there is an inadequate supply of, of just raw land or um, a combination of an inadequate lot supply as well as maybe insufficient zoning or the zoning that's been uh, designated isn't achievable from a market standpoint. If you have a community that upzones to unlimited heights, but multifamily high-rise products aren't being built, um, is it really an accurate representation from a planning perspective to suggest that that development is likely to occur in some short period of time. So those are the types of things that this bill looked at trying to improve and refine. Commerce also was directed to do an RFP process uh, to hire a firm to kind of do a deeper dive into the buildable lands process, how it plays into comprehensive planning and overall the housing element of GMA to really focus in on this issue and provide a report back to the legislature at the end of 2018. So I believe Commerce is close to, if not already, selected uh, a consultant to do that work, which will be undergone uh, very soon. And, and we think that will continue to bear light on this issue and um, allow the legislature to make more progress in the years to come yeah well uh, you know this is an issue that we identified as a problem with with the, uh, these billable land reports as they were saying uh, well x county needs twenty thousand new units but it didn't it didn't say twenty thousand new units of which fourteen thousand should be single family housing and in in any of the areas around here when the market has the ability to work at all uh, 60 to 65 percent of the uh, public seems to want single-family housing. Now, that may change and of course, uh, if multifamily becomes more attractive and because of price points, but uh, I mean, I, I think that dovetails uh, quite a bit with this. the other point that you made about having uh, a minimum single-family residency requirement. So we'll see where that, where that might go. But uh, uh, there's one issue, Nick, that's on, the, on this list here that you provided me that's interesting and it seems to be on maybe not on the same topic as many of the other ones but it appears that uh, the master bill is just supporting a simple majority for school bonds as opposed to the super majority that uh, that we now have so can you speak to that sure and that has How's that relate raised eyebrows for some you know um i mean at a at the highest level, there's no question that one of the elements of a strong community is good schools. And I think if anyone who's been paying any attention to state government here in Washington for the last six or seven years realizes is that schools have been its top issue. It's not only the state's paramount duty from a constitutional perspective, but because of litigation brought by um, a family in Jimicum, Washington, actually, in this McCleary case, the school funding point has become an issue of debate the last several years in the legislature. We've talked about it a few times <laughs> and, here on Policy I'm sure Today. You have. And and one of the one of the issues that is integrally related is uh, the state's capacity to provide adequate capital dollars for school construction. Uh, there's a number of school districts throughout the state that year over year have no problem passing bonds. Their voters are happy to do it, and um, and 
and they're uh, you know funding new capital school construction as a result. But there's a lot of districts in the state where they aren't uh, able to pass bonds, and if they are, it's unpredictable at best, and it usually is a multi-year effort that it can be very expensive from an electoral perspective. Um, from our members' perspective, you know, bonds is really what brings in adequate resources to do the major school construction projects that our districts and our students desperately need. Because so many districts aren't able to achieve that level of funding and don't get that voter approval, uh, they're reliant on school impact fees, which are directly passed on to new homeowners. And uh, the amount that these impact fees are assessed at can range wildly from year to year, I think in large part, or in at least part, because of the difficulty to pass bonds. So, you know, I think there's uh, two motivations here. One is, we think all school districts in the state and all students in this state deserve adequate capacity to ensure we have facilities that are adequate to uh, meet our educational demands. I think uh, from our industry's perspective, we also think that by creating a lower threshold to pass school bonds, it better socializes the cost across uh, the community to um, fund this important need rather than putting it all on the backs of homeowners. Because ultimately, this pa- this cost, if it's assessed just through a school impact fee, is passed along to uh, young families that are buying homes. And when we're in an affordability crisis, um, just adding one more layer of cost onto their ability to enter the uh, homeownership marketplace doesn't seem like the best strategy uh, when we might have another one available. Sure, sure. So is there anything else that uh, we should know about uh, about the legislative priorities that your folks are going to be putting forth here in uh, the next session and in the coming years? You know, I think as an industry, we're just um, we're at a point where obviously we realize that, um, as you stated earlier, this really has become an issue of bipartisan concern. Um, uh and and so while these are issues that we're speaking about, I think the encouraging thing is that um, a lot of organizations are speaking about these issues and not organizations that maybe have typically uh, advocated for housing affordability in quite this way. So I think the more that we can... Um, uh, the more that we can all share in, in, a, in a common understanding that there is a broad spectrum here of needs that need to be addressed, both through ensuring that we do have predictable and stable public funding sources to ensure that our most vulnerable communities um, have access to adequate housing, um, but also that we need to ensure we continue to have an adequate supply and pipeline of housing to support all income levels. And I think um, uh, as a community, as a region, and as a state, we're all going to be better for it and can be a real leader here in the country on addressing what are, um, uh, you know, kind of chronic issues in um, healthy economic areas. Sure, sure. Yeah, well, t- today, a, a, a new family starting out, a, a young person uh, who's a professional starting out, very difficult to purchase a piece of property and begin that other, begin that investment that, uh, that is part of what every family should be able to have. 
My name is Lou Moore with the Washington Research Council. I've been here today with Nick Harper, a board member of the Washington Research Council and policy director at the Master Builders of King and Snohomish County. Nick, we appreciate your time, and we thank all of you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lou.